welcome to the Trinity Table Talk podcast, a resource for Trinity Anglican Church out of Littleton, Colorado. It'll be the goal of this podcast to serve as a resource for theological education and spiritual reflection for all those who might listen. I'm Andrew Winnegar, and today I'm joined again by Father Tim Suits. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. So last week we were talking about the doctrine of God, and we were led by the first article, the 39 articles. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and the preserver of all things, both the visible and invisible. And this week, we get to this this last sentence. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is probably one of the oldest in church history. Um, describe it for me. What, what is the doctrine of the Trinity in more words than what was just used? Sure. Yeah. Well, what we see continued is uh, what we talked about last week, that the nature of God is pure act. He is the fullness of himself at all times. He is the one who is perfect and simple and complete because he is so overwhelmingly full of life, so dynamically alive that you can't get more alive and more dynamic and more true and more good than he already is. But it's important to remember that this dynamic life of God, which is the divine nature, is constituted by the perfect life of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The life of the Trinity in which the Father begets and loves the Son where the Son worships and glorifies the Father, where the Spirit is the very love and gift of the divine life. This is the pure act that we talked about last week itself. This interplay between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is the singular, perfect act of God. You know, there is no fourth thing beyond the life of the Trinity. You know, often we think about like there's the divine nature that is the oneness of God. And that's like the fourth member of the Trinity floating out there that, you know, like kind of like how, you know, you're a man and I'm a man. Therefore, there's there's this idea of manness. That's not what it's like with God. There is only one God who exists in perfect divine life. And that perfect divine life is constituted by the perfect life of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we are getting to is the deep end of theology, as complicated and as glorious and as beautiful as it can possibly get. Because we serve a God that, like no human being would have made this up. If you wanted to make up a religion, right, and market it really well, I think a pure monotheism would make a lot of sense to people, right? There is one ultimate being and it's just one. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, you know. But Christianity says, yeah, there's one ultimate being, God himself. And God himself is the perfect communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't think this is a doctrine that human beings would have made up if they wanted their religion to spread very far. It has to be something that just came from God himself when he's like, hey, this is what I'm like. Because, you know... uh, Putting that level of a mystery right at the center of a religion is not a great marketing strategy. But it is something that appears to me that if God is actually God, he's going to be a kind of being 
that stretches the human mind and imagination beyond its breaking point. And that's where we're at today in the perfect life of the Trinity. I remember in, in uh, the fourth and fifth grade class that I will sometimes teach, uh, we were talking about God being unity and Trinity, Trinity and unity, three in one. And I was describing like how something can't be a circle and a square until you blow it up into three dimensions, right? You have to um, kind of look at those things different. The perspective change. Um, so a can can be both a circle and a square, depending on your perspective of it. Um, I'm curious, this this example put into the Trinity, how do we need to re-understand um, like how we use the words persons or substance to help clarify and and prepare our minds to understand this well. Yeah, I think in any given person, we tend to vacillate between thinking about, you know, focusing in on the oneness or focusing in on the threeness. And so one of the cliffs that we can fall off of is to kind of see the Trinity as like this eternal democracy, right? Where the son is one thing entirely and he has his own will and his own consciousness, his own being. The spirit isn't another thing entirely with his own will and consciousness and being. And the father is his own thing entirely with his will and consciousness and being. That is not how we can properly speak of the Trinity because that is tritheism, right? It's, it's, it's not how we can talk about it. The other way we can't talk about the Trinity is that God simply appears as uh, the father at some points and as the son at other points and as the spirit at other points. It's called modalism. The biblical witness doesn't talk about God in either of those fashions. Rather, the biblical witness maintains, as we talked about last week, that God is one. But in that oneness, the Bible talks about the Spirit as God, the Father as God, and the Son as God. And the Bible actually talks about these three persons as interacting with one another. So they actually have a distinct relation to one another that clearly differentiates them. And yet we have to hold to the Old Testament reality of the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the way that the church has talked about this is the way, you know, we have to think about this um, and be very careful when we talk about persons. And I don't want to get too far into these weeds because um, there are better people than me to talk about this. But basically, uh, whether it was Thomas Aquinas or, or Augustine before him, the, the idea is that a person in the triune life is a subsistent, meaning a grounding reality, relation. So that the father is distinctly the father because of the relational reality that he has a son. He is the one that begets a son, but is not begotten. The son is the one who is begotten, but does not beget. And the spirit is the one who is spirated from both the father and the son and receives a relation of origin from both. And so what we see is the father is the fountainhead of being, the one who is unbegotten, the son who is the one who is begotten of the father, and the spirit is the one who is spirated from both the father and the son. These are what are called incommunicable attributes, meaning the son does not share that relation of origin in the way that the spirit does. He has one relation of origin, the father. The spirit has a dual relation of origin between the father and the son. 
And the father exists as the one who has no origin. He is the one who's, you know, self-begotten, if one might put it that way. So really what we have to do is when we talk about the Trinity is recognize that when we talk about personhood, yes, we are saying that these are distinct persons. They have incommunicable attributes, meaning something unique about them. But they share one will, one consciousness, and one substance or essence, one act of being. I, um, <clears throat> growing up, this was always like, yeah, it was always a conundrum, but it was a conundrum to be avoided. Uh, mystery was spoken, uh, as like an, not as an insult, but as like a fatalistic, like, ah, it's just a mystery, whatever, move on. But as I went throughout my theological education, had some really influential professors and something you're really passionate about too, is that, uh, the Trinity is not like an addendum to our systematic theology. It is the heart of that runs throughout all points of our theology. Yeah. Um, it is an essential mystery, a central mystery, not just, yeah, an addendum. I'm curious, what are some ways you see that playing out? Yeah, that's a, man, I, I hope everybody listening that goes to Trinity Anglican could list, you know, 20 different ways that that plays out because I hope that every sermon I'm leaving breadcrumbs or, or leaving very clear illustrations of how the Trinity is not just some mystery to be avoided, as you put it. Rather, it is the very shape of the Christian life. The whole Christian life is shaped in a Trinitarian fashion. Now, I think today maybe you and I could talk through three specific things in the Christian life that every Christian holds dear um, and are inherently Trinitarian in their shape. Like the things that we love the most about the faith, the things that when, when hopefully when you are sharing the gospel with someone that is not a Christian and you're like, this is why you should become a Christian. This is why this is better than anything else. They're all shaped in a Trinitarian fashion. So let's look at three of them today. Adoption, that we are adopted into the life of God. Revelation, meaning God wants to be known and wants you to know him. And then we'll talk about worship. God wants to be in communion with us. So first, adoption. Adoption in its very nature is Trinitarian because the very heart of the Trinitarian life is the shape of a father and a son gazing upon one another in perfect love. The father begets his perfect son in eternity past, in the ever eternal present that is the triune life. And the father gazes upon the son in the perfect joy and splendor of the triune life. The son returns the father's gaze, worships him, glorifies him, magnifies him, and the spirit is the uh, one that is breathed forth as the very love itself, right? A father-son love dynamic is the very heart of the Trinity. And the gift of Christ to us is that Jesus brings us into that. Jesus says, come alongside me. I'm going to smuggle you into the life of the Trinity, right? I'm going to bring you in and clothe you in and hide you in myself so that when the Father looks at you, he is seeing me and the Father's gaze and smile and joy is now yours. 
But in order to get to that place, we first have to understand a couple important doctrinal realities. And first and foremost, we have to understand the doctrine of participation. We don't, in our modern minds, don't tend to think in participatory language, but the Bible does. And here's what I mean by participation. Um, we have ones that can represent the many in the Bible. All over the Bible, you see that there is one that is selected, and that one person represents the many, you know, all of Israel beneath them. So we can think about it, you know, in, in Romans chapter 5, you know, all sin and fall within Adam. He is the one that represents all of us, right? But we also see it in all over the Old Testament in particular. Like David goes and fights Goliath as the one that represents the entire army of Israel, right? And if he loses, all of Israel loses. And if he wins, all of Israel wins. Moses, you know, his arms are raised, right? And if his arms stay up, the Israelite army wins. If his, if his arms fall, the Israelite army loses, right? The one representing the many. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest offers, sac offers sacrifices for Israel. And when he offers sacrifices and goes into the holiest of holies, what is he wearing? A breastplate with 12 stones on it. Why do you think that is? Because in the one, the whole 12 tribes of Israel are represented in this one. Well, what we see especially in like Romans 5, that the one that now represents resurrected, redeemed humanity is Christ Jesus. That if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has united you to him. As John 15 says, like a branch to a vine. Uh, that you are clothed in him, as Galatians 3.27 says, right? You are hidden in him as Colossians 3.3 3 says. All of these images that we have in the New Testament of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ are these participatory languages, right? That we don't like become Christ in his very essence, right? But we participate in him in that we are still distinct from him and yet one with him. We are still um, ourselves, you know, we don't just like join the cosmic reality that is Christ, you know, like in a, you know, maybe like receiving enlightenment and just completely losing ourselves. You always maintain yourself, but you participate in, are united in, brought into this reality like a branch grafted into a vine. And it's interesting too, that the spirit is said is the, to be the one that does that work, right? Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 calls the spirit the seal that seals us, unites us, binds us to Jesus. So what do we see in the life of adoption, right? The one true son, Jesus Christ, comes to earth as fully God and fully man. And he unites his people to himself so that they are hidden in his humanity, clothed in his humanity, participate in his humanity so closely by the power of the Holy Spirit that when the Father gazes upon them, he simply sees his glorious, perfect Son. And so the perfect love between Father and Son, breathed forth by the Holy Spirit, is now shared with us as we are united to Christ and brought into that perfect adopted life. And so... 
the only way, like the, the whole reality that, that we are perfectly loved by God is because we are brought into the perfect pre-existing love of God, of Father, Son, by the Holy Spirit. And when we say that we are loved by God, it's not like we are like out there just kind of like, you know, walking around in the kingdom and the kingdom's in his castle and he kind of sees us way off in the distance and he says, oh yeah, I, I like that guy. Like he's, he's a, he did me a solid last week. You know, he, he was a cobbler. He fixed my boots or something, right? It's not like that. No, you're so close to the father that you're united to the son so that the father perfectly gazes upon you in wonderment, joy, and glory in the perfect triune life. Our adoption is a Trinitarian adoption. And it's also, that, that reveals it's perfect gratuity. It's perfectly gracious, right? Like it, it, it's a gift, you know, no person can like climb their way into the Trinity. Like that, you can't do it, right? Other religions say, okay, follow this path to enlightenment. God says, let me bring you into the perfect enlightenment of the triune life. Let me bring you into it. Let me sustain you in it. Let me nourish you in it. It is a perfect act of adoption where God sees us as far off and he sends his very son to perfectly live for us, die for us, rise for us, so that the Spirit, by faith, might unite us to the Son and bring us into the perfect love of the Father. This is why, you know, when I preach to you on Sunday mornings, and I'm like, you are unconditionally loved by God, you know, and you don't believe it, and that's the problem. It's because what I'm saying is, like, if you're united to the triune life, the triune life is unconditional love. And that's the love you're brought into. And so when we think God is angry with us and hates us, what we are doing is blaspheming the triune life. Because the triune life is perfect love that we are brought into. How could we ever think that the love that is given to us is anything less than that? Because it's promised that that is the level of love we're given. Hmm. That's good. So what about Revelation? Revelation. It goes hand in hand, right? Um, here's a deal. If humanity could go, go and find God, we would have done it by now, right? And somebody would have written a book on it and everyone would have been like, this proves that this is the way to God. You can't. We're not going to be able to go find God in our own strength. Rather, our sinfulness has so clouded our judgment, so blinded our eyes that even if we wanted to, we couldn't see God in his fullness and splendor. Not only that, but this is the big kind of thing that the reformers were trying to make, is that, you know, Romans chapter 1 says you can know things about God just from the creation. You can know just enough about God to be damned by God. You can know just enough about God to know that you're like an infract, you're, inf you're, you're guilty before a perfect being, right? But you cannot know from creation that God is the perfect life of the Trinity. It's not there. You're not going to come to that conclusion. It has to be God breaking into our existence and revealing himself to us. And so even that revelation of God is shaped by the Trinity, right? The Father is the one who wants to be known. That's something that, that we shouldn't just take for granted. The Father wants to be known. 
The father made himself as being the kind of, of person, the kind of being that, that wants to bring creation into knowledge of him and to be known by him. The son, according to Colossians 1, 15 and 16, is the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the one that perfectly reveals who God is. He is the one that breaks into our existence and accommodates to humanity the infinite being of God in a human being. You know, Calvin often talked about this complicated idea called the doctrine of divine accommodation. He would talk about the Bible as God's baby talk to humanity. But in reality, all of God's engagement with us is divine accommodation. A perfect spirit being that is infinite has to find a way to make himself known because we are finite creatures that can't fully understand it, right? And the only way we can have that happen is if God breaks into our existence and reveals himself to us. And then it's also interesting that the spirit knows within our knowing, sees within our seeing, acts within our acting to reveal God to us and so that we can rightly understand who God is. You know, Ephesians 1, 15 through 18 says this, and I'm just going to quote it because I think this one's hard for us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The eyes of your heart can't be enlightened outside of the spirit acting to break our human heart of stone, to give us a heart of flesh, to remove our, our eyes of idolatry, and to give us an eyes to see God as he truly is. So to know God has to be initiated by God, has to be um, you know, established by God in the Son, and it even has to be returned to God by the Spirit being the one to break down um, you know, uh, our idolatrous eyes and to show us who God actually is. So adoption and revelation, to know God, to be in relationship with God, it must be an act of God in the triune life. But Andrew, I want to, you know, I've been talking too much and I get to talk a lot in this podcast. I know that the last one we talked about, worship, that's something you're passionate about, that the triune life or, or, or worship is shaped by the triune life. Why don't you comment on that for us? Yeah, this is, this is actually why I'm Anglican. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you that or not. No. But it was after reading uh, James B. Torrance's Worship, community and the triune god of grace there's that like one there's that one chapter where he goes through like a what is a, a trinitarian understanding of worship and then seeing that really well exemplified in the liturgy of anglicanism mm. that i was like oh this is just so much more beautiful i'm i like i'm sold on this yeah and then everything else came later but yeah so worship i i think it's worth mentioning that firstly worship more than it is music or prayer or anything else, it is that like perfect act of love and adoration, which as you've already mentioned, um, the only perfect worship, the only acceptable worship is the worship of the son to the father. Mm. And so if we are in, in taking on that participatory lens, um, 
Because if we don't participate in the son's righteousness and the son's worship of the father, then there really is no hope for us. No, uh, no. We're just like a bunch of racket in the years of God. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's even in our worship we're sinful. Yeah. And oh man, I wish I had it memorized. There's that, um, I think it's from Isaiah. Like, what are these songs that you're singing to me? What is this noise you're making? Because they're doing it utterly from uh, a heart that does not love God, truly. So we look for the son's worship in the father. And of course, we participate in it by an act of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I have found this like, uh, have so much relevance for um, how I go about how I go about worship like during a Sunday service because yeah, at any given point um, I might be too anxious. Well, now that I work at the church, it's most often true that I'm too anxious to like really be present to that moment of worship. Um, But even when I was younger and I would have the worship leader telling me to raise, raise our hands, like give ourselves in worship. uh, There were so many times of emotional dissonance and then to be shown, which is like a, Torrance argues that this is like a Unitarian model of worship, that worship is something we offer up to God solely. But the beauty of liturgy, the beauty of reading prayers that we didn't write, of joining in songs that we did not create, is that we are invited to participate in something that's bigger than us. And most immediately, it's the whole congregation more than that, it's the universal church, but most fundamentally, it's the worship of the Son to the Father, and we're tied to that mm-hmm. via the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that understanding of worship is um, not just theoretically, but also in practice, is just so much more comforting, so much more beautiful um, than than whatever I'm able to drum up and offer on any Sunday morning. You know, I think like a really great singer can somehow or another elevate everyone around them, right? Um, They can, I don't know how this works. I'm not a musician, right? But you have like, you know, uh, there is a way to like, you know, like an auto-tune, you know, like auto-tuning, right? You know, you can take someone's like wildly off-key singing and you can fix it. So it's perfect and beautiful. Now, autotune doesn't sound perfect or beautiful because it sounds like a robot. (laughs) But you can imagine if someone was such a good singer, they could match your pitch perfectly to bring you on key. That's what the sun does for us every time we worship God. I always sound like a better singer when I'm singing along with the original track. Yeah, and then whenever I turn it off, I'm like, "Ooh, wow! I'm yeah, I'm really not that good." Yeah, let's turn that back on. And so when you feel like I am just my heart is empty today, God. I've, my sins are ever before me. And yet here I am at church worshiping with your people in word and in sacrament. The only hope that we have is that the spirit is binding us to the son and he is perfectly glorifying the father in the eternal song that is the triune life of love. And that's what the father sees in you, not your sinfulness that puts you off key. Yeah. You know, the, the very first prayer of the, is a prayer of purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. That's bad news, right? 
Terrible news. That's a confession. It actually begins in a confession. People don't know Anglicanism actually starts in a confession. I was raised as a Presbyterian and the confession is like really burdensome and it's at the beginning. We tend to say, no, it needs to have a moderate confession at the beginning. Then God's word convicts you. Then we have the full-blown confession right before the Eucharist service. But in the prayer of purity, there still is a confession. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Not good news. I'm bringing before you mixed motives at best. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. What is that? It's only by the Spirit working within us to cleanse our hearts and offer up worship. How? Through the Son that this whole worship service that we're about to embark upon can be anything other than a disaster. And by the grace of God, every Sunday, the Trinity says, hey guys, I got this. And they bring us into their perfect song of worship. That's what the beauty of the Trinity is, right? And that's that's the beauty of triune worship is if you come to church like tired or you come to church excited or you come to church wherever you're at, God will carry you in it. And that means that if someone has a limited cognitive capacity their entire life, you know, when we have children that can't, will never get to read or see or, or understand uh, fully what they're engaging in, the Trinity can even carry them into worship just as they carry me. And that, that's the hope I think that I, I, I love. And that's why our church is named Trinity. Yeah. That's why our church is named Trinity. Uh, you reminded me of a story. Um, one of my professors would tell pretty, with s- somewhat frequency, but I think it illustrates that point really, really well. Um, he had a friend of his whose wife had dementia. And at some point she had progressed um, to the point that she looked at her husband and was like, I don't, I don't remember who Jesus is, but I have this impression that he's very important, but I don't remember who he is. And the husband doing the best he can to care for his wife um, just says that that's okay because he remembers you. And I think that like beautifully illustrates that participation in Christ's perfect life to the Father through the Son and what comfort that can bring. Yeah, amen, amen. Well, we'll go ahead and end the episode right there us on this episode and we hope to see you in the next one. For more resources or information about Trinity Anglican Church, please visit trinitylittleton.com.